Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob's, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. It is clear from just reading this psalm that the word Selah is a repetitive thing, and we commented in a previous message on that, that it meant to pause or to reflect. But here really we see two songs buttered together. We have that opening, one to six, as one song or one hymn, and then from verse seven to ten, a different hymn, as if they weren't together. When you and I write material, we make sure that we are clear this belongs with that and that belongs to this. And so we have chapter headings and divisions, but they didn't exist back then. And so many of the Psalms were just buttered together without a break, and we've inserted the breaks. And perhaps this would be better seen as two separate songs, but they are just buttered together. According to Jewish tradition, every Sunday this was read in the temple, every Sunday. And in traditional synagogues, it is still done on a Sunday morning. The Jewish tradition says that this is written by David. But did you note that opening line? A psalm of, sorry, that it was written by Solomon. But the opening line is clearly... David. They say it is in the tune of David. And this was written when King Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple itself. It's tradition, but it's not quite right because it clearly says a psalm of David. And so we've got to be careful with Jewish traditions that we don't uh, take them as gospel. What I do see is a trilogy, though, of psalms. Psalm 22, 23, and 24, in one sense, all talk about the same thing. In Psalm 22, the psalm of the crucifixion, we see the good shepherd who lays down his life, John 10, 11. In Psalm 23, 
the Lord is my shepherd, we reflect on the words from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, the great shepherd of the sheep who brought in the new covenant, the eternal covenant, through his blood that he had shed already in Psalm 22. And here in this psalm, he is the shepherd king who will lead, who will come. He's the chief shepherd who hands out the grounds of glory from 1 Peter 5. And so it is a part of a trilogy where God is seen as a shepherd, as a guide who will lead us one way or the other. And he can either be our salvation because he's shed his blood and he can lead us, or he will be, as it says he clearly, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. The Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle. These are phrases that would rely on the book of Exodus, where God is seen, Exodus 15, verses 3 to 10, where he is the man of war. These are military verses. Uh, the Bible is not adverse to that. We often see Jesus as meek and mild, but here he is coming as the king. And the first thing that the king had to do was be the judge. And judgment would find place in the gates, and it connects here with that. So looking at this psalm, those two hymns that are bottled together, we see in verses 1 to 2 that he is the Lord of creation. The earth is the Lord's and all that contains. It was founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. In the King James it has flood, and that makes sense in the sense of that it was founded upon. Uh, the word there, uh, Nahal, is really a river or flowing river or something that is flowing. And so that makes sense either way. But he did establish it upon the flood. But it's not the flood of Noah. It's the flood from before when God hovered over the waters. God made the heavens and the earth, and so that is declared here. Other psalms that reflect this are Psalm 104, verses 5 and 6. He set the earth upon its foundation that it should never be moved and covered it with deep as a garment. Or Psalm 136 he spread it out upon the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so God is seen here as the creator to whom all things belong. David makes that universal declaration, all belongs to him. He is the king of all things. Many pagans at this time, when they wrote their hymns, saw their gods as limited. Uh, you had the god of the rivers, the god of the land, the god of the animals, the god of the sea, the god of the sky. Or they were territorial gods, gods that belonged to the, god or the country of Moab or Edom. But it had no power beyond this. David says that is not the case. He is the god who created all things. All belongs to him. The word here for world is the word arets or arets, depending on the, the voweling. It can mean the land or the earth or the, the world. The world and all that it contains. It's the dry land in particular that he's reflecting upon. Uh, 
perhaps even the land of Israel, as it was established amongst the waters. Israel today is still surrounded by water, and so that makes sense either way. But now that we're introduced to God, he now tells us what he expects from us. For who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? At Passover, every Jewish traditional family will say that line, who may ascend? And so it is something that we should reflect upon because what is it that we celebrate? Well, we don't celebrate the exodus of Egypt, but we do celebrate our redemption. And that is what they're celebrating. And as such, how do we stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Back in temple times, that was simple. All you needed to do was go to the fountain, wash your hands, so you had clean hands. But the pure heart, how did that happen? Confession and sacrifice. We too need to do that. We need to say to the Lord, we've done wrong. And David does that a lot of times in the Psalms where he pleads for God to forgive him. We too need to stand before the judge of all the earth and say, Lord, forgive us. Now, none of us brought a sheep here to church. I'm grateful for that. Uh, and sometimes we do have goats in church, not here though. And I'm grateful for that too. But we too have a sacrifice. And in Psalm 22, he described that sacrifice for Christ has died for our sins. And we talked about that this morning. And so we need to stand with him in right action and in right heart, a purity of thought. We think of the heart as the seed of emotions, but in Hebrew thinking, it is the seed of thinking. The kidneys are the emotions. It's the gut, we would say. So he's saying, I've got to have right thinking. I've got to think about these things to express them truly and faithfully. James, in his book, reflects upon this too, James 2, 17 to 18, when he says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith, apart, sorry, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. These things go hand in hand, pure heart, clean hands, so that we may do what God has called us to do. He has not sworn deceitfully. It is slightly expressed differently in the King James. Who's not lifted up his soul unto vanity or sworn deceitfully. What he's reflecting upon is the Ten Commandments. You shall not take my name in vain. Uh, Exodus 20 verse 7 uh, that taking of the name in vain is so significant, and it's found back in uh, the book of Amos, chapter 6, verse 8. For the Lord has sworn by himself, uh, and he uses that same expression, that nafshi, that soul. And so we need to make sure that we swear by the Lord in purity and holiness, not deceitfully. Jesus reflected upon this too and said, let your yes be yes. Don't swear by other things. 
It's that purity of heart that comes back. And then we will receive the blessing. This is, again, Hebrew parallelism, because what is that blessing? Righteousness from our God. And it's the God of salvation. We will receive that blessing that is righteousness, a right standing with God. Can we ever earn that? No. No matter how much we wash our hands physically, we cannot. Even if we only confessed our sins, but it's that whole concept of standing before God with clean hands and a pure heart, then we will receive his blessing. Salvation. Without it, we would not be able to stand. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him. The Septuagint here adds a little phrase. To those who seek your face, even the God of Jacob. Uh, the God of is not in the text. Uh, it's perfectly fine to see that. That's not a problem. Uh, we do seek the God of Jacob. He's mentioned some 25 times by that title in Scripture. But how many times have we sought your face even like Jacob? When we think of Jacob, who do we think of? It's a painful thing, but most of us, and Jews have followed in this tradition, sadly. These Christians see Jacob as the deceiver, as the liar. Yet God chose him because he loved him. Jacob sought God consistently over and over and over again. Uh, Genesis 32, verse 30, consistently he seeks covenant and wants to be a part of the covenant people. And yet we see Jacob as the deceiver. It's a bad thing. In Genesis 28, it says that Jacob was a quiet man while Esau, his brother, was a mighty hunter. Well, the, the mighty hunter before him was a very negative term. And the Hebrew there doesn't express quiet, but it expresses upright. Yet we see Jacob never as the upright one. And so we should seek God like Jacob. Yet we don't. We should even seek him in that sense. He had that dream of the covenants. He had the dream of the ladder going up to heaven. He saw the place, Peniel, uh, God's place, God's face. And so he desired to see God. How many times are we like Jacob? And that alone should be worth our time to ponder and to think about. But our psalm continues here. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. And it's clear there is a, a, a break here because it is a new song. It is thought that when King David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem that this was written. 
And to some degree, he says, lift up. If this was reflecting upon people, which it often uh, is said, uh, when the king comes in, you don't lift up your head, you look down, let alone the king of glory. Perhaps he's saying these gates through which the Ark of the Covenant must come are too small. Raise them up. Make them bigger. For it is the king of glory that is coming in. To some degree, we can see a future aspect in this. Uh, The gates were too small then, let alone when King Messiah will come from Uh, the nations from Edom, from Taman, comes up to Jerusalem, let that be lifted up. Those gates, because that will be the millennial kingdom gate, which will be much higher, not what we have today. But David is writing this about Jerusalem then, not the Jerusalem of the future. And so it is the king of salvation, the king of glory, who is being welcomed here. Because it is phraseology, let the king come in, the king of glory, some people see this as a coronation psalm. In other words, for every psalm, for every king of Judah, this psalm would have been repeated when they became crowned as king. I'm, I'm not sure that's true, but I do like it. I do like to think that they sung this on a regular basis, and particularly reflecting that Even when we install a king, it is not about this king. It is about the greater king on whose authority he reigns. Napoleon once said, a leader is only a dealer in hope. And that is what the king in many ways is. He is a dealer in hope. In other words, he is there to inspire his people. But inspire the people for what? Just military, as Napoleon was? And the answer would be no. He is there to inspire the people to seek the God of Jacob and to be like Jacob, to be pure in heart and have clean hands. Be lifted up, O gates, that the king of glory may come in. The Hebrew word here for glory is kavod. It comes from the word kavod, meaning heavy. The king of glory, we think of glory as in light, as in brightness. But glory is also heavy. When the priest came into the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord was so heavy that they could not minister and they had to redraw. They would fall on their face as in, it is so heavy to be in his presence. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Uh, Again, it's that reference back from Exodus 15, the Lord in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. It is something that we are perhaps scared of. Uh, Not many of the songs, particularly in Australia, are about the Lord in battle. 
the Americans do have more battle hymns. But that reflects more their military breakup and their history rather than the Lord in battle. But when the Lord comes back, he will battle with the nations. David and I, as we came in here this morning, we were talking about this to a little degree. When we reflect upon the world to come, he will come as king of glory, mighty in battle, but half the world will be lost. Two-thirds of the Jewish people will be lost. And it is because they don't know the God of Jacob, the God of salvation, Therefore, they will encounter the God of battle. How much better for us would it be to give praise to his glorious name, to sing of his glory? Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 5 to 6. Then the Levite said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made the heavens and the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that's in them. You've preserved them. And the host of heaven worships you. Should we not do the same? God is asking of us, do we worship him in that way? The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And the God of glory appears throughout the Psalms consistently. He will come. And just as in the past, so too in the future, he will not share his glory with another. And so we either give him the glory or we meet him who is mighty in battle. He is the God of creation. He is the God who wants us to stand in his presence with clean hands and a pure heart so that we may receive from him righteousness and salvation and seek his face even like Jacob. Then we can stand in front of him, the God of glory, the God who is mighty in battle. He is called the Lord of hosts, Adonai Sefaot. When we think of that phrase, the Lord of hosts, we immediately think of, oh, that's the heavenly armies. Well, that would be one host, but not hosts as in plural. Yes, he's the captain of the host, like in Joshua 5, when he met him there at Jericho. Uh, We know that was talking about Jesus. So to hear, this is who he's talking about. And just like Joshua, we need to worship him. The heavenly hosts are described, for instance, in Isaiah 6. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it's the, the angelic host. Uh, We see it again in Revelation 4, in verse 8, for instance, where that same phraseology is described. Uh, It is the angelic army, but that would be only a part of it. When Elisha prayed, open the eyes of my servant that he may see your hosts, 
he saw horses and chariots of fire all around. But Israel too is called the Lord, sorry, the host of the Lord. Uh, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 26, or in Exodus 7, 4. Uh, when Pharaoh didn't listen, Moses said, The Lord will bring out his host, my people, the children of Israel. And so they are too a host, a military army. We too are a military. Uh, Paul writes about that in his letters in Philippians 2, Verse 25, he talks about Ephroditus, his fellow soldier. Or in Philippians 1, he talks about Archippus, his fellow soldier. I guess we are, uh, to some degree, uh, soldiers in the, you know, the army. Again, it's probably uncomfortable for us. We're not the Salvation Army. Uh, it kind of doesn't quite fit for us. Uh, I've never been in the military. I, I don't like orders or giving orders or being given orders. But God is the Lord of hosts. He will give orders. And it is either obey or learn the lesson. Paul addresses his fellow workers as fellow soldiers. And so you and I are too, are soldiers. And so God has three armies up in the heavens, the faithful of Israel and the faithful within the church. And so he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory, the Lord strong, mighty in battle, because a battle is coming and it is already here. And then he repeats in verse 9, he repeats himself. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. I don't think now he's talking about those ancient gates anymore, but he's talking about their usage. Uh, gates is where the judge has sat, and the judge would judge the people and in equity and hopefully in, in doing right. Doors would be placed in the gates to protect the people. This would be a military aspect of it. So if we see them in that context, these are the judges and the military. In other words, these are the leadership, our political leadership, and our military leadership. Paul asked us to pray for our leadership. So too here, we need to do that. Lift up your heads. In other words, lift up your elders and make sure that you pray for them. And in that sense, it is right to pray for Scott Morris and, and our leadership. Because they are there as a guardian, as a protector for us, so that the wrong one doesn't come in, but the right one, the king of glory, that he may come in. And he repeats himself again, saying, Who is this king? the king of glory, as if to warn us. And it makes sense because who is masquerading himself like an angel of light? Who is deceiving himself and the others, the nations? So we need to make sure that the one who is coming in is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts, for he is the king of glory. In that light, these three Psalms, 22, 23, 24, 
the crucifixion, the shepherd Sam, who wants to be the one who saves us by his blood, who laid down his life for us, the good shepherd who protects us, and here the king of glory, the shepherd who will be king no matter what comes, the king who will hand out the crown of glory to those who know him. In that sense, we need to understand this and figure out, do we trust in him, the great shepherd who is to come? Yesterday I was teaching on Daniel chapter 7, and it says this, Daniel seven thirteen to 14. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, that's the glory clouds, came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed Daniel is talking about the king of glory who is coming in, the Lord of hosts. And so, too, we need to say, who is this king of glory? Who is the Lord of hosts? Jesus is the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts, and he is coming soon.